Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. We're so glad you can join us. In today's latest installment of our New Year series, we will be taking stock of where things stand in Ukraine as we head into 2023. Over the past couple of months, the lines of control have remained mostly stable between Ukraine and Russia, following Kyiv's liberation of Kherson in November. However, many are now looking ahead to intensification of the fighting in the coming weeks as both sides plan to push for additional gains in the new year. Reports of Moscow's preparations for a renewed offensive, supported by the Kremlin's recent decision to replace Surovikin with Gerasimov as commander of its troops in Ukraine, have been met by an uptick in planned Western arms deliveries to Kyiv, including infantry fighting vehicles and even tanks. So to understand what we can make of these events and how the situation in Ukraine is likely to evolve in the second year of fighting, we're very happy to welcome back to the podcast, Mike Kaufman, and to welcome for the first time, Lawrence Friedman. So welcome to you both. Good to be here. Um, Good to be back. Quick background, Mike is the research program director in the Russia Studies program at CNA and an adjunct senior fellow at CNAS. And Lawrence is an emeritus professor of war studies at King's College London and the author of the recently published book, Command, The Politics of Military Operations from Korea to Ukraine. Um, Okay, Lawrence, maybe we can start with you. I always like to do a little table setting at the beginning. Um, We talk a lot about the arc of the story. And so as we're getting close to the one-year anniversary of fighting, how would you describe where things stand presently uh, in the war in Ukraine? It's it's quite an uncertain period, I think. Um, This war's gone through stages. Uh, the, The first stage was combined the shock of the the Russian invasion with an equivalent shock in a way of the successful Ukrainian resistance. And that lasted till about the end of March when the the Russians said that they were going to focus on on the Donbass and withdraw from around Kyiv and and the north and so on, which they then did. Then you have this um, uh, attritional period in the summer where that the Russians were, were were pounding away at Donetsk and trying to make progress in the Donbass, and they achieved not a lot and exhausted themselves in some way. And that was followed um, by a, a sort of transitional period as, as the Ukrainians got in more, more kit, more equipment, uh, able to, to uh, uh, attack Russian logistics, ammunition dumps, and, and so on. And then they made their breakthroughs, first in Kharkiv uh, and, and then in Kherson. Um, but I think a critical moment, and, and I would say at that point, things were looking pretty good for Ukraine. And then a critical moment came in September when Putin, instead of sort of starting to cut his losses, doubled down. Uh, and we had a number of things there. Uh, first, the um, uh, announced annexation of four additional provinces in addition to Crimea, which made it much harder to, to, to have a peace deal then. It, it was clear that, in a sense, he was boxed himself in. Secondly, um, the mobilization, um, which took a while to get going, it was pretty shambolic to start with, but eventually they've organized themselves better. And third, the attacks on Ukrainian infrastructure which have been sort of weathered, but at a high cost, I think, to Ukraine. But but it was never likely that this was going to lead Ukraine to capitulate. But one shouldn't underestimate the, the, the damage that it's done and, and the stress it's caused. 
Um, and the mobilization combined with the winter has sort of uh, has, has led to a degree of stability, though you've had this big battle um, for Donetsk around Bakhmut and Solidar, uh, and pushing by the by the Ukrainians who, uh, and with some progress in the clans, but not as much as they might have might have hoped. So we're waiting, in a sense. We've, we've reached a stage where the Russians are making announcements uh, about their command structures, about how big their army is going to be, um, about uh, all, making it as clear as they can that they, they're in it for the long term, while I think displaying some anxiety about what the what new Western support is going to mean to um, to Ukraine. And the Ukrainians are have, uh, sort of suffered um, in the civilian side and to some extent on the military side and are gearing up uh, for what is going to be a, a, a quite a critical offensive. So uh, at the moment, although there may be uh, sort of newsworthy breakthroughs in the coming week, I think um, we're sort of waiting for, for for the next major stage uh, of land operations. Mike, you should feel free to add to anything. And I mean, I guess it, you're like you're in this period of uncertainty and a little bit of waiting. I mean, do you think? And and I have my own answer, but how would you characterize you know Russia's aims? Um, certainly, the fighting seems to be focused primarily around Solidar and Bakhmut, maybe a couple of other places. Any indication that they have um, downsized their objectives, or how would you describe kind of what you think the Russians are trying to accomplish at this phase of the war? So I think Russian minimal war aims are to still take the rest of the Donbass, and you see fair consistency in Russian offensive operations aimed at Donetsk and Luhansk. I think. Their minimum conditions include some kind, either uh, an attempt to coerce recognition of the four territories that they annexed, right? Which I don't think they're going to get, but then at the very least to hold what they currently hold uh, in those in those regions, uh, and uh, perhaps to uh, drag out this war, certainly through twenty twenty three to eventually make it rather difficult materially for Ukraine to sustain or, or more accurately for Western partners of Ukraine to sustain because Ukraine's war effort and economy very much depends on external material assistance in this effort. And that's the way I would describe both kind of Russian political objectives and uh, rough outlines of the military strategy. I think there's, there's a really good debate to be had whether the recent command shift, the shakeup with Gerasimov taking over directly as commander of the so-called special operation, if that is indicative of a change in Russian military strategy or not, or if we've actually seen considerable continuity in it over the course of this past uh, year of fighting. Uh, thanks uh, to both of you for the, for those. And I, I want to take us... Uh, to about a 30,000 foot level and then look backwards for a second. Uh, usually I wait for the very end to ask a question like this, but I just can't, I can't wait. I want to ask it now. And Dr. Friedman, you know, you, you're really the Dean of military thinking and strategy. Uh, I think Mike would agree with that. We both, uh, 
so much of your work and t- uh, over time, uh, you've you've developed certainly through just observing the conflicts over the past number of years. Uh, you know, an idea of the nature of war and how that changes. And so, my question for you is: as you look back at the last year of this unexpected war breaking out in Europe, what what surprised you in terms of the nature of war, the nature of warfare, how things are different? how this might be representative uh, as being a, a break, if you will, in terms of the nature of war, but also what hasn't changed at all? That if someone from 100 years ago uh, looking at the Ukraine war today would see things that just haven't changed uh, over time. So as you as you look back over the last year from this 30,000 foot level, what's what has surprised you and what hasn't surprised you? Um. Well, I mean, it is, there's a very many timeless aspects of war uh, and they're all present. And I don't think generals from either of the two world wars, once they've got the hang of the new technologies, would be at all surprised by how this is being fought. I mean, there are very similar concepts, whether you're talking about interior lines or uh, whether the defense is stronger than the offense, um, whether you're talking about attrition or maneuver and the relationship between the two, the role of artillery, um, all of these things I think would be perfectly comprehensible, I say, once they've got the hang of the new technology. Uh, I think they would be surprised by the transparency of, of a lot of what is going on, uh, the extent to which um, all sorts of people are reporting from the front lines. and. It's far less controlled um, than it has been in in previous wars. Uh, They probably would have been intrigued by uh, the cyber aspects of it. Um, And I think perhaps most of all, you've you've had two basic revolutions since 1945. You've had the nuclear one, and that has been extremely important in this war as in the way that one would have expected, which is it's contained it. Um, And secondly, the digital revolution, which has made for uh, greater accuracy, better sensors. Um, And I suppose the oddity there is that the Russians have not been able to take as much advantage of that because, and Mike will correct me if I'm wrong, but they seem to have used up an awful lot of their PGMs uh, quite early on. Um, so they haven't actually been using ac- uh, precision in the way that the Ukrainians have had to use precision because they just don't have the mass that the Russians uh, are brought to bear or prepared to, 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 to use it in the same way. Um, so that's um, that's a feature that, 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 that one would have expected to see, but again, not as much. And finally, um, although air power has been used, it's certainly not been absent from this war, if you'd been, you know, if one of these sides had been uh, the United States or even one of you know, US allies, I think air power would have been much more device, decisive. And because it hasn't been quite as decisive, again, it's not been unimportant, but, but it just hasn't made the difference one might have expected. The um, I think that's added to the the strength of the defence that, that that it's it's been harder to knock holes. Um, so that, that that would be my sort of first thoughts. But I I, I mean it, this is a war that's um, remarkably similar 
in some of its aspects. It was a war of conquest, which you know it, it's, it is also something that, that uh, you know, many people thought we were over. It's not. It's not like the sort of messy civil wars, which we've uh, which we've also got ourselves entangled with in recent times. Thank you. That was excellent, Mike. You want to add to that? I'll add a few thoughts. Um, yeah, I don't think war is over. I, I think I was definitely on the other side of Steve Pinker's argument about uh, the likelihood for high casualties, sort of interstate conflict. But uh, it became, become less frequent, that's for sure. But the the thoughts I have looking at this is, you know, first of all, what, what's, what was important in the conflict itself, right? And you saw that, uh, you know, one was the question of whether or not organizations can scale force employment, like what they can do with a small number of units, what they can do in exercises or in an expeditionary operation, could they scale that up to a major conventional war with a lot of forces, several fronts? Uh, could they could they have the logistics, the communications, and could they make that work? And so Russians struggled with that considerably early on. They, they, I think they've certainly gotten better at it over the course of the war, but it was a big issue. Uh, another one is, um, can organizations put into practice what they have in theory? And this is to Lori's point on Russian employment of long-range precision-guided weapons. You know, they had the theory. They actually had didn't have the practice. They didn't have the organizations to use those weapons effectively. They had the weapons. This is, by the way, one always a challenge when you look at China or something else. If you've never seen them at war, you have a hypothesis for how they will use it and what it might look like for them. But actually, you don't know if they can do it at all. They have the capabilities, sure. They have the they have the sensors, and they have all the theory, and the theory looks really good doctrinally. It's beautifully written, yeah. But then they go to war, and they can't put it together because they actually haven't done it. They don't have the organizational adaptations. They don't have the experience, and they haven't fixed it over time. And they saw the transition from Russian use of precision-guided weapons in spring into the summer versus the later fall strike campaign against Ukrainian critical infrastructure. And it was like watching night and day in terms of targeting and employment, to be honest. Real differences, right? And this, the difference you see between the military uh, in the first three months of the war versus, you know, nine months, 10 months. Um, and yeah, fortunately, I think with Lori, Russia spent a lot of its precision guide weapons early on. And then only only later on when they got, uh, I think, much more much more effective in using them, then they had a small arsenal, and they're basically stuck firing much closer to their monthly production rate. Big picture, I'd say my main takeaways from this, and I'll keep this short, one, to me, conventional war is very much beyond the initial operation. If, if the initial operation doesn't resolve the war, and between major powers, it usually doesn't, because any major power can survive an initial blow, typically. Like, that's that's the reality. I think that's been a reality of war going into World War One. People re recognize this before World War I. Um, they're going to come down to wars of attrition. And it is about uh, replacement of material and uh, manpower and ammunition. And the side that's better able to reconstitute and rebuild itself, come back better, that's the side that will be able to impose dilemmas on their opponent, right? So it's, it's about uh, how you fare in, in the war, not to put glibly, but over time. This is already a long war. Whenever people say this is going to be a long war, I say it is. It's too late to have a short war. This is already a long war by interstate war standards. Yeah. It's just a question of how protracted it's going to be. Okay. We're already in year two of this war. And, you know, the other one is, I think, an interesting debate on 
that we always have intellectually on sort of maneuver versus attrition and to what extent is this war useful to seeing uh, what it takes to make maneuver warfare possible. In this war, it's really only been possible where it's been easy. Attrition has been doing most of the work, right? And the question is, okay, is that a useful finding? Because one answer could be, in this war, you don't have a sufficient uh, asymmetry between the opponents. You don't have one side with air superiority. The U.S. really hasn't done combined arms maneuver without air superiority, okay? Like that's, just, that's just the way the U.S. fights. So the question is, is this a useful finding for the United States? Or would the United States establish air superiority or major advantage in this conflict to try to enable maneuver warfare? Another question is, is, is it true that maneuver warfare is very difficult, or is it just the case that neither side has been particularly good at it in this war, right? Because that could also be, you know, another take. And I've been grappling with this myself. Anyway, I won't go down this rabbit hole. But there's always, at the end of the day, wars present themselves useful lessons, but they're in a context. People often want to strip the context away to generalize from the war for the thing they're trying to learn from it. Be, I always say, be very careful with this. Be very, very careful with this, right? Because the context really matter, you know. Um, and and if if you if you lose that, you might lose uh, the key fact the key facts of the case, right? Of why it happened the way it did. Like, why is Ukrainian precision strike work? Well, they received it at a key point in the war, but it's heavily being enabled by the United States. Right, which is involved in this conflict materially, but is not a direct party to the war in a sense that it can be engaged. So the U.S. can provide targeting and ISR for Ukrainian HIMARS and precision strike in the battlefield at any time, can't be engaged itself. Ukrainians have the advantage of that and of all the ammunition supply U.S. can provide. Another country, another context won't have that, won't have all those luxuries. The, right. the United States, for example, if you ask it, cannot lean on another United States in the event of a war to provide a targeting and ISR with untouchable means and an extra supply of ammo. So whenever people ask me about lessons for us, and I am speaking now from a US-centric perspective being in DC, I say, be careful what you learn from this war. In the event the US has to go to war, there won't be a second US to depend upon. Uh, may I, just to follow on from that, um, actually to, back to Mike's first point about uh, military organizations. Um, I mean, this is critical um, because um, when doctrine gets written and, and concepts are developed, there's an enormous tendency to assume that military organizations are incredibly efficient and they can put all sorts of disparate things together in, in amazing feats of coordination. And actually they can't. So when you look at the context, the, the concepts, whether, whether it's combined arms or hybrid war or multi-domain or whatever, everything's about pulling things together and synchronizing them and so on. And actually that's very difficult because every bit of the armed forces has got its own priorities and its own limitations and its own strengths. Um, uh, and uh, they're often, work, you know, most armies work at cross purposes with each other, just the, the way of war, because war, in the timeless lessons of going back to, to clouds of its friction um, is a key factor. So um, it, it, it is an important reality check, I think, about what happens when you move from um, thinking about future war and your concepts of future war and actually hitting the reality of an opponent trying to, to thwart what you're up to. And that can be disorienting because you know things just aren't expecting 
on, on working out as you expect. And it also leads to the command question, which obviously interests me quite a bit, in that um, to start with, I think there was a, uh, I'm interested in Mike's view on this, to start with, there's a very clear contrast um, in the sense you had a very top-down Russian approach um, and you had, by almost by necessity, uh, a quite a devolved Ukrainian approach because uh, th they had to be uh, rely a lot on small groups and um, they'd also been influenced by Western uh, Western views and, and Western structures. Uh, and also you had quite a lot of the veterans coming in from, after all this, this war in some respects started in 2014. So there's a lot of people who, uh, in quite junior positions, not nonetheless with experience. So the, the, the Ukrainians could fight a more decentralized war. My sense is that as time goes on, um, that though there is still quite a bit of, of um, mission commanders, as, as, we, as we might say, the Ukrainians have had to look at the, the other side of the equation, which how do you use scarce resources more effectively? Where do you just have to pull people away, even though they're feeling, thinking they're doing a brave and good job, just because you, you've got to conserve your resources? Um, how much the Russians have managed to devolve more, I, I, I'm less I'm less clear. I think their their instincts are still to, to have quite a lot of central control. But I think that's one of the things, again, that people will be be looking at at the command lessons. It's another example of, of the dangers of decop decontextualizing, as, as Mike put it, um, you, you can, lessons that you might have drawn in, in March don't always work uh, this January. Yeah, that's really helpful. Um, Mike, just to come back to this war of attrition point, um, if we're understanding this largely as a war of attrition, and as you said, it kind of comes down to how the two sides can replace manpower and ammunition, et cetera, et cetera. Um, how do the two sides stack up? And maybe we can start with the Russian side. You know, there's a lot of discussion that there could be another uh, major mobilization. I think just this week, Putin was talk made some statement about the fact that their factories are, you know, working 24-7 and doing extra shifts on their kind of defense industrial base. Um, I mean, I think that that keeps coming back as a key question is how long can Russia sustain its effort? And I wonder kind of how you're thinking about that from those various different kind of uh, you know, manpower, ammunition, et cetera. Sure. So I think on economic and defense industrial mobilization, Russia got uh, started fairly late into the war. And I think the reason for that, my own interpretation, um, but I've heard this elsewhere, is that actually they were so concerned and so focused on surviving the initial impact of U.S. sanctions and all their um, joint interdepartmental committees focus on this aspect of it, that they weren't touching mobilization aspects of the economy or mobilization in general until they felt fairly confident that they'd stabilize the situation in February through the summer when you look at the impact of your sanctions and export controls. Like this was priority on one. The, on the defense industrial base, not, or, yeah. or from a macro but economic. Mobilization as well, because mobilization is politically consequential and economically disruptive. If you're focused on surviving sanctions in the first six months and somebody else comes to you and your leader says, hey, also, I think we should enact wartime measures and mobilize X percentage of manpower across uh, the population base. They'll say, hold on. 
you know, how many crises at the same time should we try to manage, try to handle? And I think that was, that's what was going on in Russian political leadership, why they weren't keen to enact mobilization to begin with. They're very busy surviving sanctions on their impact first. Um, uh, okay, putting that aside, though, but to get to your main question, I think my take is that, look, the Russian military has a structural manpower deficit through the spring and summer because of how they invaded and the force they put together, right? And the fact that we, we know that they intended to essentially just roll Ukraine in a matter of 10 days, thinking Ukrainians would, would give up. They then try to fight this way without uh, being able to replace manpower effectively. They were compensating for a lack of manpower with a huge advantage in artillery, concentrated artillery fire and rate of fire, spring to summer, a massive advantage in artillery. Uh, when HIMARS was introduced into the battlefield very late into June, it began to reduce Russia's artillery advantage because it forced them to reorganize how they uh, how they do logistics for it, and that just decreased their overall rate of fire. Okay, fast forward after mobilization, Russia is no longer at a manpower disadvantage. I'll be very frank. One of the big questions I think we should consider for discussion here is. You know, the discussion in 2023 is, is under these conditions, will the Russian military that no longer has a manpower deficit, has logistics that seem substantially reorganized, have adapted to the presence of HIMARS on the battlefield to the extent they can. It's very visibly they have done it about two months since the system has been introduced. Has a reduced battlefield with a higher uh, density of forces defending it, right? With reserves, with the capacity to rotate units, you know, what will help uh, Ukraine make progress under these conditions. The main deficit I think the Russian military has is first, probably fires because they had been spending ammunition at a very high rate, much higher than certainly they make, right? And that's a basic physics problem. I don't know if the Russian military will have, uh, have to ration artillery this spring or later this summer or later this fall, but but it's, it's a basic matter of physics. They will have to because they have been using artillery at an immense rate. Okay. So Wait, I think the Russians. The Ukrainians or the Russians? The Russians. So I think the Russian military now has the mass as the manpower. Where it has a deficit is actually on the fire side because they spent so much ammunition over the course of last year. This, this is my supposition. And there are debates like how much artillery ammo do they really have? How do we count it? Is a reduction in fire because of XYZ or is it multi-causal? But I, I won't get into the into the details of it, but this is my sense of the Ukrainian side. One sorry, is one plausible hypothesis that the rate has reduced because they're saving up for a larger offensive? Is that one of the is that a plausible theory? I mean, this, but both sides are saving up because what happened over the last uh, what's happened over the last two three months is actually neither side has pressed the other side all that much. Both sides are focused on reconstitution, right? Like the Ballenbach mood is a, a vicious grinding fight, but you can see that the actual uh, intensity of fighting has dramatically decreased along the front, and you only have a few localized points of real fighting, and so this is in part responsible for uh, a substantially decreased uh, use of artillery by both Russia and Ukraine. But this picture is going to change. It's probably going to change either later into February or going into the spring, because it's clear that both sides have offensive intentions. So the intensity is going to dramatically increase at some point in the near future. On the Ukraine side, I think, look, 
I think the Ukrainian military uh, enjoys certainly advantages, but but has its own sets of challenges, right? Um, first, they, they have now relative parity of artillery, but it's not clear that the West can uh, supply them with enough relative superiority in artillery fire to give them a sufficient advantage over the Russian military. So that leads to a quest of what are the things you can do under current conditions, right, to, to enable Ukrainian success. And, you know, you've seen kind of three answers at least being put on the board. First is uh, qualitative advantage in precision strike systems. Second is a relative advantage in equipment, right, by providing Western armored, armored fighting vehicles, IVs, APCs, maybe tanks, and then in aggregate, it'll help because Ukraine's trying to build additional units. And that's like very, that's very hungry in terms of the equipment that, that, that they need to get to build these other brigades. Yeah, the great additional brigades, they need a lot more mechanized equipment. And the third one is combined arms training, which is the basically, I think, U.S. theory that if you can get Ukraine to fight a lot more efficiently, then they won't be so dependent on artillery, fire, and attrition, right? Because if you look at it going into 2023, there's a real strain to supply current Ukraine artillery use at the rate that they're using it. And if you ask the question, well, how much... What would, what would their rate of fire have to be to establish a substantial relative advantage over the Russian military, right? And can we supply that rate of fire? And I think my answer, honestly, is no. Okay? So there has to be a better, smarter way than just can Ukraine out-artillery Russia, which is an artillery army, right? I don't know what Lori thinks about this, but basically, like, but I don't think it's a competitive strategy to try to add artillery the Russian the Russian artillery force. I think you have to find like some other strategies and approaches to doing it. I think that's what the quest is about under current conditions. And I think there's a general sense that look, Kherson was difficult uh, for Ukraine. They were able to push Russian forces out of there, but it looks between Kharkiv and Kherson that all the future battles are going to be harder. And the gains are going to come at much greater cost. And that Kharkiv was a bit anomalous because of the state of Russian forces. You're not going to find a large territory sort of essentially uh, very thinly or weakly defended. And Kherson showed that, that actually, you know, there's a lot of work to be done at the operational level uh, in terms of Ukrainian uh, conduct of offensive operations, right? And, and the last point I'll say on this, the next Ukrainian offensive um, is not risk-free. In Kherson, there was no risk of a Russian counterattack, right? I don't know. I'll be curious to hear what Lori thinks about this because the Russian military could not expand from that position at all. So Ukraine could prosecute the offensive at will. That will not be the case in Zaporizhia or in Luhansk or in other parts of Ukraine where the Russian military operates. There, how the offensive goes and what happens has real, has, I think, greater consequences. But okay, I'll, I'll stop talking because I, I want, I think, on like a five-minute monologue. That's okay, Mike. No, that was really great. But Laurie, I, I, do, I do want you to weigh in on this on the like kind of relative, I don't know, balance of power. That's probably not the right term, but kind of thinking about the two sides and their ability to reconstitute moving forward. You know, we I feel like we get into these uh, never ending debates about time. Who does, you know, what side does time favor? <laughs> and so I don't know if, if asking the question that way is useful or not, but, but when you look at it, what do you think? I think we've got to look at it with a mind to the political context um so it, it's it's not just it, it's partly a question of 
uh, of reserves and capacity and production and, and, and logistics and all these things. But it's also a question of who can cope better with disappointment, if you like, or, or, or slow movement or frustration, who can be patient. Um, now, there's the, the very different political situations. Um, uh, reasons Mike's given, the Ukrainians have to persuade their backers that they're worth backing. The, that this isn't just a, a black hole through which all their inventories go. Uh, you know, they're, they're left with uh, bare cupboards themselves without the Ukrainians having achieved very much. I think you know, this is something the Ukrainians are conscious of. And up to now, um, because they've acquitted themselves pretty well, um, it hasn't been an issue, but it's getting harder for the reasons Mike said. Now, I think that, you know, the Western suppliers are committed to Ukraine, um, it would be the most enormous betrayal to suddenly say, well, you know, you gave it a good shot, uh, but but actually, you know, um, um, we can't afford to support you anymore. I think, you know, I think the more serious parts of Western governments, this they understood the, the, the importance of the moment uh, and both the moral and geopolitical reasons they don't want to back down. But there are capacity constraints, there are potentially public opinion constraints, although it's not particularly, I mean, in a sense, one hopes that we've got through the worst of the effects on or economic effects, for example, on, on public opinion will come out of that. So that's the, the, the key thing to watch on, on, on the Ukrainian side. I mean, they've got no choice but to keep going. I mean, they, they just don't have an option of conceding territory to to um, to Russia. I mean, it, it, they may not be able to take it back, but they're not going to concede it in, in, in a peace treaty or something. On the Russian side, we don't... Sorry, really quick, before you get to the Russian side, then are you encouraged by the kind of flurry of recent announcements, the armored vehicles? Yes, I mean, I... I well, is that well, a good sign? I mean, well, it is a good sign, but I guess... It's a good sign. I mean, I, I think there's a seriousness about the situation because I think it's understood... If you look, you know, back at the uh, where we've how we've moved from, you know, the the, the sort of Molotov cocktail stage of, of February uh, 2022 to some of the most sophisticated weaponry now, it, it's a long way. Uh, and I think it, but it's also recognition that, that for again for the reasons Mike explained, the next set of offences are both sides are, are potentially critical, and. Um, now, whether you know some of the stuff that's been promised will be there in time is another is another issue, uh, but quite a lot of it will be, uh, and and I think that so on the Ukrainian side at the moment they've got the Western support, and I think this is why this ne the next offensives are so important because um, or the, or the next battles. I mean, it's difficult to know you know who's going to be offending, who's going to be counter-offending, and uh, and so on, and, and, and who moves first. And I wouldn't necessarily encourage the Ukrainians to be the first mover in, in this. Mike and I had a chat about this the other day. Uh, it, it, it's um, because once you move on to the offence, you expose yourself. I mean, that's, that's the danger of, of uh, offensive operations. Now, on the Russian side, you know, they've got precious little to show for months of effort. They made their major gains um, right at the start of the war, and some of them they're still holding on to. They achieved a bit more uh, when they focused on the Donbass, but not really enough to uh, justify the extraordinary expenditure of, of people and ammunition 
and so on. And, and basically, at the end of it, they they capture depopulated rubble. And there's going to so uh, and, and Putin keeps on and Shoigu keeps on changing the command structures, which suggests that they don't feel they've got it right at the very least. And some of the statements you know, we see coming from the Russian side, uh, which are expressing their sort of anger at what the West is supplying Ukraine with. It don't give you, don't suggest enormous confidence. Although, you know, again, I agree with Mike that they, they, they wish it to be believed at the very least that they can, they can outlast everybody and, and stick this out for some time. But we don't know enough, I don't think, about about what's going on in the Kremlin, about whether there are when you hear reports, but how much people are saying, you know, is, isn't how do we get out of this? Is there a point where we call it a day? I mean, I thought. Not, a, not not as a prediction, but as a possibility that in the summer the Russians would ask for a ceasefire. Why don't you just cash in your winnings, put put Ukraine under under pressure? But they didn't, and they're not, and they made it even harder for themselves now because they make it as a precondition that the four new provinces are recognised, and it's you know, just not going to happen. So that I think is is the challenge for Russia if if with all the effort, you achieve continue to achieve very little, uh, and indeed maybe you, you keep on getting pushed a bit backwards. Then, question, then at the very least, somebody's going to say, "Well, you know, maybe if we just ask for the Donbass, maybe that's something we could do." I mean, like, you, you're just sort of waiting for, for for those sort of initiatives, and they haven't come. Um, but that that political side, I think, is going to become increasingly important at the moment. People are waiting to see what happens in the next battles, um, but uh, as those battles unfold, I think some you know the harder political questions on both sides uh, will be pushed to the fore. Yeah, I think I am also surprised. I'm surprised by or keep waiting to think that maybe Putin will try to mix things up by calling for the ceasefire to really put pressure on the Western alliance. But I was just doing some reading on some of the war termination literature, and there's this really fascinating finding that, and I don't know if you agree with this, Laurie, from your kind of understanding of history, but like that leaders that start wars very infrequently end them. And this whole literature kind of talks about culpability, right? And so once you're kind of responsible for the war, it's very difficult to extricate yourself from one. And I think the even more depressing piece of it is that there's also like that culpability is inherited. So even a leader past Putin um, especially someone who comes from the same regime, which is entirely plausible, um, is similarly culpable and will also have a hard time extricating themselves from the war. So kind of when you look at it through that lens, I think it gets very depressing very quickly. Yeah, well, losers don't stay in office very long. I mean, there's plenty of uh, examples of that. And, you know, the problem for Putin, as soon as the war ends, there's a reckoning. Uh, which which is why I don't think he wants to end it. I think he'd rather keep on going, even if he loses more ground than um, the, 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 than face the reckoning. So I think that that that's um, a problem. And, you know, people say all wars end with a negotiation. They don't all end with negotiations. Some of them end with surrenders or with routes. Some of them end with sort of messy ceasefires, which is, I mean, I still suspect that's the most likely way this one might end, but not a proper negotiation. But, um, you know, we're... I, I, I don't predict it. I think it's very hard to see the end game at the moment, um, other, other than at some point Russia uh, will have to work out, uh, is it prepared to continue 
without a lot to show for it, unless, of course, they they make some stunning breakthroughs in the spring. But I, I don't. I, I find it hard to see that at the moment. Mike, did you want to add something there? Yeah, I was going to say on Putin that uh, I agree with Lori that the situation of Russia right now is such that the war is the problem. And as long as the war is the problem, you're not going to see, I think, serious leadership changes. But the day the war is over, Putin becomes the problem for a real problem because there's no uh, ability for Russia to uh, get back at least some modicum what their existence was like before the war, as long as Putin's in charge. And the sanctions stay as long as he's in charge and what have you, right? So he then becomes a problem. And also the reckoning then comes for people like Shoigu and other people in the regime that you know were incompetent. They're in there because they're loyal. And now's not the time in the personal authoritarian system when you make changes, right? Because it can quickly unravel uh, the system. But but at some point, all these people will realize when the war is over that they're they're in trouble, and uh, and so I I don't know what that looks like. The other the only part I will say to add to the the pressing, uh, uh segment of this podcast is that however wars end, it's often up to the loser uh, to end the war because people people can lose wars and they just don't concede; they just keep it going. They keep it going as a simmering war of attrition. They uh, refuse to acknowledge any sort of settlement and then start building up for a continuation war, meaning how the war ends just leads to another war. And unless you can actually drive to their capital and force them to sign a termination to the war, they don't have to concede. You can say that you've won and they will say that you haven't. Right. And and keep it going. So this is a very frustrating part of it that I've been grappling with as well, that uh, the many the many. Uh, arguments for how this war might end don't explain actually why Russia wouldn't return to war, why it wouldn't yield a continuation of war, or why Putin would necessarily even agree, even if Ukrainians have de facto achieved military victory, which I think is is a is certainly in the realm of possible, but in the and the very optimistic end of that equation. Jim, you've been waiting, I think. Oh well, this has just been fascinating. Uh, I wanted to ask you about the Wagner Group and the politics in Moscow. Certainly, between the Wagner uh, boss and uh, the Russian military uh, and Putin, and how they must be elbowing each other. And but I don't. But I'm not going to go down there. I want to ask something that's a little bit of a higher level. But I wanted to put that on the table as something interesting. But yeah. I. But what I want to ask you is this: Certainly, Putin putting the nuclear card on the table by saying, I might just use this weapon in, in the various ways in which he said that. And even before he put that card on the table, that was our concern, was that that card could be put on the table. It had, it had as we've said already, it had a, a, uh, an effect of, of deterring the U.S. and deterring the West, as we saw, in terms of our degree of participation. So my question for you all is this. You know, as, as we're now going to have to deal with this, now that that card's been played, um, how does that impact the way NATO looks on uh, the use of nuclear weapons or how the use or how the U.S. looks on it? In other words, are we going to have to always contend with this self-deterrence because of that nuclear card having been played? No longer theoretical, no more a war game thing. It was on the table. Are, 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 are we going to have to face the fact? And I don't have a view on here. I'm not pitching something. But is NATO, whose whose nuclear policy I think is I think it's 
I think it's gone now. I think they've got to come up with a, a way of, as an alliance, how are they going to grapple with an aggressor who's put that card on the table? How will the U.S. do it? Are we going to now have to have more realistic exercises at NATO of, of, of combat in a tactical nuclear environment, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? How is that going to impact, or does it at all? Or is it we just pedal on and uh, just keep our eyes closed and hope it never happens? Well, I, I, you know, I think nuclear weapons have played exactly the role one would have expected in this conflict. They've contained it. Um, Russia hasn't attacked NATO countries, though they're providing direct important assistance. They're the route through which weapons are reaching Ukraine. Um, and NATO countries, including the US, have been far more restrained than they would otherwise have been because of um, the fear that that would lead to nuclear use. But tactical nuclear weapons or right. threats thereof have been irrelevant, I think. Um, uh, I mean, they haven't been irrelevant because people talk about them a lot and then say, and therefore Ukraine should negotiate, which is, um, uh, I mean, you don't hear that so much now because uh, I think we've moved beyond that point. And they could, you know, they could come back again. I saw, I mean, Medvedev, um, to the extent he's sober, keeps on uh, referring to nuclear threats. You, you, you see it on state media uh, as well. Uh, but but it's it, not none of it particularly uh, credible because it's actually quite hard to use these weapons. Um, and they've escalated. It's not as if this is the only means they've got to escalate. The, you know, the, 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 they've taken out a lot of Ukrainian infrastructure. They've caused casualties, civilian casualties. It's not as if, you know, we, we've stayed at some stage one on the ladder and and, um, uh, and the only way we could move to a higher stage is once nuclears have been used. There's, um, all sorts of horrible things have been going on so i don't find i don't think it i think it, personally i think it reinforces everything i've always felt about nuclear deterrence is is that it, it um it contains the conflict you know if it hadn't been for nuclear weapons um this would have been more like i don't know august 1990 when uh, iraq invaded kuwait um there wouldn't be there wouldn't have been that much compunction about Going in and fighting side by side, and you know, big deal going to war with a, with a major power. But the combined weight of NATO conventionally would have made a tremendous difference. But we didn't do that because we didn't want the nuclear escalation. And equally, I think Putin uh, is aware that the benefits he's getting from nuclear deterrence could be lost if he used nuclear weapons in a sort of lesser way. Mike, you can feel free to weigh in on that, but also I mean, we don't have a lot of time and we didn't um, pick up on the Gerasimov piece. And I know there's been a lot of takes on Twitter, but as we look into the coming months of 2023, you know, in, in terms of what we should expect, that's kind of the trajectory of the war and how it's shaping up. Um, do you think the Gerasimov replacement portends any significant changes in the way that Russia is executing the war? And Gerasimov, I, I I actually don't expect significant changes. I think it's really overplayed the leadership aspect of it. I think there were differences of vision. I think Sorvikin was able to stabilize the Russian war effort, but principally pursuing a defensive strategy. And that's not suitable for Russian political objectives. I think Gerasimov has always 
advocate a vision that the means are sufficient for sustained offensive operations. I don't believe that him being put in charge now means that Russia will dramatically expand the scope of military operations around Ukraine. Uh, first, I don't think it's very feasible for Russia. Second, the indicators aren't there that they're preparing to do that. Like you just don't see the forces in Belarus and other places that would lead you to suspect uh, an impending return to offensive operations on that front. Third, it actually doesn't make a sense relative to Russian goals, which are very much focused on Donbass. And I have to be honest with you, if it takes the Russian military six, seven months to get to Bakhmut, and, and I do think that the situation around Bakhmut is quite iffy going into February, then what does the people imagine to be the offensive potential of the Russian military, right? Like if if it takes them that long to make to conduct a localized ground offensive in the Donbass, I don't understand what they think this military can do scope-wise. Um, I do think it's very much in position to offer a stubborn defense, right? I I think that future battles for Ukraine are going to be much more difficult even than what Kherson was, but I'm skeptical about these like grand schemes expectations. Same thing in mobilization, by the way. Yeah, but that's right. one thing I wanted to ask. So like the, a lot around Bakhmut and Solidar is a lot of the Wagner guys, a lot of these prisoners and convicts. Is it correct that um of the forces that Russia mobilized, only a hundred thousand or so have entered the war, and there now is a a large contingent who may have received more training who will now also enter. Will that does that have the ability to up the offensive potential? No, not really. So I think what's happened is about half of the mobilized personnel were used to replenish Russian units and to stabilize the line. The other half, actually, quite a, quite a lot of them received up to three months worth of training. You know, a lot of things are written early on about mobilization. I'm sorry, we're very much whistling past the graveyard. And I think there were folks with more sober assessment discussing about the uncertainty and implications of it. The other 150,000 are not an additional set of troops that just come into the battlefield. They are reserves. They are mobilized personnel. They are labor to do a lot of the sustainment work for the Russian military, okay? And they are units that will allow Russia to conduct rotation, okay? At the very least, if you deploy combat power, you typically want that much combat power available to rotate the units they have in the front. Otherwise, the units will just get exhausted over time, right? So folks kind of imagining that the Russian military has X amount of manpower right now in Ukraine, and at any point they can bring 150,000 additional troops in, and then they'll have all the troops in Ukraine. But that's not really how this works. And that's not really how it's going to happen, right? So will Russia conduct an additional mobilization? Uh, I don't expect a 500,000 person mobilization to happen. First of all, I don't know where that comes from. I don't know why people are speculating on it. I think that um, if anything, they're going to keep a rolling mobilization going because guess what? Putin never formally ended mobilization. He didn't have a timer on it either. So there's no reason for him to come out and announce another mobilization. It doesn't have to at all. Mobilization was announced and that's it. It just keeps going. And they can keep sending notices and picking up more people. Last point on this. Look, all militaries are constrained on force employment. How many forces they can sustain and command and control in a war at a given time. So it's not like they can infinitely generate additional units and Gerasimov just keeps throwing them onto a board as little unit markers and is able to move them around. Because, you know, that's like the theory, but in practice, as you can see for the Russian military, scaling force employment is pretty challenging. So they can't just throw in, you know, another 100, 200,000 men onto the battlefield 
or sustain all these people and command them uh, at the same time. There's a, there's a real governing factor at the end of the day, right? Both sides have, have constraints. So that's my view of it. I think, you know, I will... I won't get into the, the nitty-gritty politics of so much speculation. What does Gerasimov mean? Does that resolve a fight between, you know, Prigozhin and Kadyrov and Shoigu? I'll tell you that to me, this was never that serious of a fight. I think it was interesting to observe within the Russian military. It clearly was uh, a contest that posed a real nuisance to Shoigu. Russian forces in Solidar uh, reflected this because... When when they largely took the city, Wagner troops made it look like they took it all on their own, and Russian MOD made it look like they took it all on their own without Wagner. And it was kind of somewhat amusing to watch them PR to PR PR this war as though the other side's not involved in it. But that being said, Rigorshin can't really touch Shoigo. What's happening in the Russian military side is uh because of the problems they're having. They've adopted a sort of more radical policy of through telegram channels ventilating all the issues in the hope that this, this leads to their military leadership being shamed and embarrassed and actually doing their jobs and sorting these problems, right? Because a lot of these telegram channels are Russian government affiliated. I see them translating quote on Twitter all the time. And I got to tell you, a lot of them are very clearly affiliated with the Russian military or Russian intelligence and other things where these sources come from. Okay. And, and some of it is, uh, I think some of this is being pushed intentionally out there. And I do think that the Russian political leadership is looking at the situation and seeing the problems in the military and thinking that actually it's, it's probably good to see a competition between Wagner and MOD because Wagner's criticism will make the MOD hopefully perform better. Because Putin is stuck with these guys, right? They're not very competent, but they are loyal, and he can't get rid of them, and he's stuck with them. So what's his, like, what, what's the what's the only way you could potentially improve performance, which is make it make their make the problems more clear? I don't know. This is one hypothesis, right? Because it's like it's a personal authoritarian system. It's very hard to imagine that you know these things are all happening, but they're not in the interest of anyone. Right. That like the way you don't want to interpret this as a liberal democracy where people are just able to voice whatever they feel like. There's no control. And it's 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 not at all reflective of interest in the system. It also makes Putin the critical arbiter. Right. So that's. Yeah, uh, I, I mean, I agree. I think I agree with my. Um, it's an odd situation, though, isn't it, where you basically have this private army, which is, has to be paid for in the same manner by the Ministry of Defense in the end. Prigozhin isn't using his own funds. It's not like a sort of feudal baron uh, bring, bringing, uh, paying, paying for his troops with his own resources. Uh, and, he, and he's also, of course, got his own uh, commercial interests uh, at the back of his head as well. Um, it's, a, it's just a very curious situation. And, and of course, it, it does, it, like many of these sort of personalized dictatorships, there's a lot going on in terms of how do you gain Putin's attention? How do you make sure you get the resources you want? So I think there was something real in, in the tension between Shoigu, Gerasimov, uh, and Putin. And I think that and, and uh, Prigozhin, and I think that did affect. That was a factor potentially in the uh, in the reorganization. But it, it, as with, as with all these things, it's it's a symptom of the system. That the, they they do it like this, uh, and it has, uh, in the same way that 
you know, Mike points out correctly that, that Shoigu and Gerasimov are there because they've been there forever and, and, and they're, they're, they're loyal to Putin and they do, do his bidding. And he doesn't, and the last thing people like Putin want is a new general to emerge who gains all the glory. Um, uh, and um, I mean, even, you know, even Zelensky is said to be a bit nervous on that side. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's it's not a new problem in war. You, in the end, you're always judging people uh, as uh, in terms of their political role as well as their military role. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's I mean, it's like a subset of the dictator's dilemma. The more you rely on repression and have to empower people with access to weapons, the more you increase the risk that they could at some point unseat you. So it's, it's not necessarily weapons. your security services, but yeah, you don't want your military leaders establishing their own base of support. So we're we're uh, going a bit long, but maybe just the, the final question in thinking of, you know, this whole, all of the debate and discussion um, around tanks, just to come back to that. A, how much impact will that have? And pro probably the answer is not much at current levels. And Laurie, you made the point about it's going to take a while for them to get there. But looking forward, what is it that you think Ukraine needs most um, in order to be uh, best positioned on the battlefield? Well, I think you have to assume the things they're asking for. Um, they want air defences, uh, which are, are clearly very important. They want they want the ability to manoeuvre. Um, they want, and they need ammunition. I mean, I think all the things that, that Mike's mentioned already, they, they need all of these things. Uh, and, they, and they need it to keep coming. And, you know, I think one of the challenges for the West is is that we've got to look at our own production capabilities because we've got, um, you know, speak for the UK, I mean, the cupboard's pretty bare uh, in, in some areas. And when the, chief, when the chief of the army made this point the other day, you know, it, there's a, at some point you, 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 we're, we're going to need to reconstitute as well. So I think you're basically looking for... Um, uh, continuity of supply, uh, as as well as gearing up for a new offensive, um, and you have to, you know, again, you have to recognise that that one of the one of the issues is that if you're getting lots of different bits of kit from lots of different countries, it actually logistically poses enormous challenges, um, which is why you know lots of leopards make more sense than a few challenges. I mean, Challenger is there to make a political point that there's, there's no harm in sending main battle tanks to Ukraine. But actually what they need is lots of leopards. Um, uh, and uh, but that'll take time. The you know, more one learns, the, the longer it seems it's likely to take. Uh, and there is a real problem in, in, in uh, having lots of separate uh, supply lines with nuanced differences between the bits of kit, which are then quite hard um, for, for an army at the front to manage, to make sure everybody what gets to the right people at the right place. So, so I think there's got to be a degree of realism in, in how this is handled as well. Any final points on your end, Mike? Yeah, I would just say it's all about numbers, right? You need a tank, you want to make a tank brigade, you need 90 tanks. You want to make another mechanized brigade, you need 120 APCs, IFEs. So when it comes to equipment, it doesn't matter what it is. All the quality of tactical debates and sort of fetishism on which vehicle has which cool thing on it and which gun, doesn't matter. You need numbers. Ukraine's trying to build brigades, okay? And when it comes to, when, when you're looking at it from that perspective, it's like from my eyes, 
You need hundreds of vehicles. Same thing on ammunition. You need to feed 90,000 rounds per month. Okay, that's probably the bare minimum to sustain. And, uh, and, and that's the same issue if, if you want to have a qualitative uh, advantage, then you need more PGMs, right? And the U.S. is actually the main supplier for a lot of this. And the tank debate, the tank debate to me is like the political proxy debate. Right. That's what it is. Right. The 14 challenges, I fully agree with Lori. It's not what it's about. It's what will Germans agree to to give them tanks. At the end of the day, it's we get into these local proxy debates. And then and then you're as an analyst, you're stuck with uh, what I call bureaucratic constructivism, which is like, what is a tank? Well, it is what different establishments want to make of it. You know, if they don't want to send this thing, then it's a tank. If they do, you know, then if they do want to send it, then it's not a tank. Does it matter? I I have no understanding of German policy and why it is what it is. I know why Germany will send the bottom half of a tank, but not the top. Like, why will they send Gepard 2s, which is a Leopard 1 tank chassis with an air defense combat module? And they're like, we will send you the bottom half, but not the top half of the tank. You know, like this, I can't, I can't explain it. I'm just, like I said, there's, there's aspects of this that, uh, as I asked, make no sense. But it's all about aggregation numbers. And and the long pole in the tent is training and uh, force quality, because the big challenge of the fight around Bakhmut and what's happening to Son. Ukraine took significant casualties, still taking casualties there. And the Russian military basically is trading expendables, low force quality, Wagner PMCs, a lot of which are convex, for Ukrainian regulars for higher force quality. And Ukraine needs those people to conduct offensive operations. It's no longer a manpower advantage. This is one of the biggest challenges for Ukraine, how to fight smartly and how to not get into an attrition grind with the Russian military as not competitive strategies. Well, not not the best way to play out this year. That's that's how I will end. Well, thank you both. Jim had to pop off, um, but I will speak on his behalf in thanking you both for joining us. Um, this has been great. Um, I'm sure we will check in again um, in the coming months, but really appreciate it um, and hope to have you back again soon. Thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts brought to you by the Transatlantic Security Team at the Center for a New American Security. You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate and review Brussels Sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.